This probably goes without saying, but this is another of those favorites of mine when it comes to TNG. In fact, I had a viewer, actually I had two viewers, uh, from, at, a bit ago from my perspective, which means you know, months and months ago from your perspective, ask me, hey, Laura, is there any chance like you could jot down a list of all of those recommended episodes, your favorite ones that you had that VHS collection of? I started thinking about it, and I liked that idea. Like, I actually want to do that, just, just for myself. Get a, get a, like, a compilation of each of my favorite episodes and maybe make, like, make, like, a playlist of that or something and just watch those episodes whenever I feel in the mood to rewatch TNG. I don't think I could fairly do that until I finished going through the whole series, though. After all, as I've shown many, many times, analysis mode can and does change my opinion on things for better and for worse. And sometimes both within the same work, so. For anybody curious about that, once we finish going through everything, I do plan to release that list once I've finished making it. So, I would actually like to hear your guys' lists too, but maybe we'll get there when we get there. <clears throat> it's impossible to talk about this episode without talking about Saul Rubinek and David Rappaport. Now, I'm probably pronouncing his name wrong and I feel bad about that, but I was having trouble finding sources of people saying his name consistently. So please forgive me, but David Rappaport was the gentleman who was supposed to play Kivas Fajo. He attempted suicide pretty much during the making of this episode. They actually were at the point of filming. They had to do shoots of parts of the episode that didn't involve him as they hastily recast him. Now, historically speaking, especially when it comes to television, if you have to recast a cast member during filming, remember how I've talked before about the whole seven days thing? That's horrible. By what amounts to pure chance... Saul Rubinek was actually in the area and happened to be a Trekkie, and uh, I actually don't remember who the director, I think. Hang on. I'm sorry, I didn't jot down his name. Give me one second. It's right here. Uh, Timothy Bond. Yeah, I was right. It was the director. Timothy Bond um, was like, I, what are we going to do? But Saul Rubinek's in the area. How badly do you want to see the sets? And ended up inviting him on and basically asking him to do the guest star thing. Now, Saul Rubinek is an interesting actor because he's really good at portraying multiple conflicting emotions in a character simultaneously. He, I, I, I mean absolutely no, no way to... I don't mean to speak ill of the dead because David Rappaport then successfully committed suicide not too long after this. But Saul Rubinek nails this role. He sells Kivas Fajo, and is one of the biggest reasons why I enjoy this episode so damned much. He manages to come across as pathetic, affable, slimy, afraid, threatening, and in control, basically all at the same time. We even get to see legitimate enthusiasm out of his portrayal. He hits a wide emotional spectrum throughout the course of this episode. And... It's astonishing that he manages to infuse his presentation and his portrayal, and I want to stress this because this is the most important part for me, with that threat. The fact that this is someone that people should be afraid of. Not just because of his lack of morality, but what he was, and because of what he's capable of, but because of how unrestrained he is. One of the things I've always said that's most terrifying about the Joker, when the Joker is written properly, is that the Joker will do things other people won't even consider. He will go farther than most other people are capable of going. That being said, I want to talk about Fajo's plan really quickly here. Um, 
it's funny because Fajo's overall plan, his his shtick, is very surface level, and I find myself wondering how many other people have been taken in by his schemes. Lord knows the man has money to burn. He is a trader. But he, you can tell he his trading business is just a way to funnel money into what he really cares about, which is collection, which I'll talk more about later. So obviously burning money on something he cares about isn't something that bothers him any more than it bothers most people. Let me give you an example from me personally. Um, well, uh, this is a signed copy of Final Fantasy VI. That's Nobuo Umatsu's signature right there. Uh, this is very valuable to me, not just because it's FF6 and because of all those other reasons, but because of that signature. Now, assuming this were to exist in some method outside of myself, assuming I didn't own this, in other words, the desire to have it would be significant enough that I would consider spending far more than this is actually worth in order to procure it. Make sense? I'm sure most of you have things at least similar to that in your lives as well. So, having said that, his plan is strangely surface level. I already mentioned that. He goes and arranges for a you know in, an incident within the region while the Enterprise D happens to be nearby, while he happens to be nearby, while he happens to have the cure for the problem on hand and then offers to sell it to them. The one and only real flaw in this plan, the, the plot hole, if you will, is the fact that Data happened to be the one running the shuttle. There's reasons we could talk around for that, but it, it, no effort is made in the episode itself to explain why Data is the one doing this. My personal headcanon has always been that Data is the only one pilot precise enough to avoid it exploding like was presented in the episode, so that would be the, the, the theoretical reasoning there. Anywho, so Fajo's plan, okay, I'm with that. And yet he has no escape plan or backup plan. In fact, he's not trying to hide at all. He actually tries to show data off to one of the other people. I mean, that's just basically creating a paper trail at that point. And his ship is very limited on how fast it can go, which itself kind of surprised me, considering the, the level of control he has over his, his reality and the, the amount of the extent of security precautions he has gone to to ensure his safety on a ship of people who basically hate him. But I want to comment on one last thing. I want to just geek out for one quick second. Is that cool, guys? At warp 6, it'll take us about 16 hours to get there. Okay. Now, the warp scale has never been 100% codified. I've actually talked about this over in Voyager before, because there's different presentations of what warp is what based on the episode, because none of this was really intended to be contiguous, because there was no Star Trek mainliner. I've talked about this many, many times. Star Trek and continuity unfortunately do not have as much of a close connection as I personally would like it if they did. However, based on the evidence I had available, I decided to do a little math. If it actually took them 16 hours to get there at warp 6, it would take them at warp 8... warp 8.4, it would take them about 2 minutes to get there. This is the problem <laughs> with these kind of things. I mean, obviously space is still big, and it still takes a long time to go a long distance. But Warp 8 is so many factors faster, 361 factors faster, actually, than Warp 6. Warp 8.4 is, excuse me, because, again, I don't have data just for Warp 8, because Star Trek. Um, yeah! <laughs> and I mention that because they're going here to go take out this plague thing, right? Now, maybe they thought it would be unstable, but uh, that still doesn't quite hold true for me, because the instability was the fact that they didn't want to beam it and they don't want they want to pilot it very carefully but it, basically if they're willing to go at warp at all the going to warp and coming out of warp are going to be the threats there as far as destabilizing an unstable element um 
so it doesn't really matter which speed you go at that point, does it? This is also more interesting because at the end of the episode, after they've gotten there, investigated, and figured out that there's an issue, they head back at warp 8 and get there in minutes. <laughs> you noticed that, right? That's actually in the episode. This isn't just me purely geeking out. Anyways, I just thought I'd bring that up. So, let's talk about the episode proper. Data is like, dead. Uh, so, I want to give some praise to the writer. Uh, Sherry Goodhearts is her name. Uh, she's, good, she's a good writer. She's a good writer. She's done some good stuff. And she does a good job with most of this episode. Or she really does. In fact, I'm going to praise her even though I wish she did something differently. Because right at the beginning, they disable Data, and then they start scanning him. Now, the reason that's good writing is it's excellent exposition. Unfortunately, later in the episode, they then ruined that by flat-out stating what they were doing. But that is good exposition in that scene. Because in that scene, all they would have had to say is, later, we scanned it, and we got, you know, there was debris accordant with Data's you know, body in the shuttle. Nothing out, um, emi- uh, nothing out of the mists. Nothing amiss? How the hell does that saying go? English! Nothing amiss from, from the debris field, right? And therefore, we would have understood why they were scanning him to figure out exactly what needed to be put on the shuttle in order to make sure that those scanners would detect that. Right? All of that makes sense. I kind of wish it wasn't there because it would have made the intro have so much more impact. Now, obviously, we know Data's not going to die because this is a Star Trek show in general, and this is also a television show. Uh, in the late 80s, early 90s. So that kind of thing of killing off a main character, especially one of the most popular and beloved characters, is unlikely to happen. But from a purely creative standpoint, I feel like a lot of the scenes lose the impact they should have. Like there's this little flute they keep playing every time they, they discuss Data on the Enterprise before they find out that he's still alive. And it's like, I feel like that was the wrong tone to go for. I'll explain more what I mean in just a moment. But regardless, it is still a very good teaser. And what I like best is everyone just everyone's reaction is perfect. Wesley is just oh. Picard, of course, has the you know, just that look of I just lost another crewman and friend. And he of course Patrick Stewart knows how to do expressions, so he just nails it. Riker is you could just see Riker throwing up iron walls around his emotions to to not to distance himself from it, which is something he's actually discussed before back in uh, the Wounded, I want to say. Uh, no, no, it's a future episode. Uh, the bonding, that's it, the bonding, and Worf's reaction is wonderfully appropriate. All he says is a single word: "Data." It's all good stuff. I'm going to talk about the Enterprise side of things first. So, there's this bit where Geordi and Wesley go into Data's quarters to look through his things. Again, I feel these scenes are well written, but I feel like the tone isn't quite where it should have been. The tone makes these scenes feel melancholy and sad. And okay, that's understandable. But we have been made aware since the teaser that Data is not dead. And in fact, one of the first things we see when the episode comes back is that Data's fine. So the emotional impact for the viewer is obviously lessened. I almost wish there was some way to preserve the mystery. But the only way I could think to do that is to totally restructure the episode. So the episode just follows them and their trip to, you know, the 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 uh, colony. And then they find out what's going on and then they head back. And at that point, we shift over to Data and we stick on Data's perspective 
over you know however long it is for the Enterprise to get back and deal with them. It's the only way I think you could have preserved the mystery of the episode. And frankly, again, they're not killing off Data, so what mystery, right? So I think they did a good job with what they had. Again, this is still one of my favorite episodes, no mistake. But I just wish there was some way to preserve that as they start looking into things. Because it's, it's a nice little construction, and it's not like they can't do good mysteries in Star Trek. Cough, cough, clues, cough, cough. Anyways, <clears throat> so they start looking through the stuff. And this is one of the things they do well with the Enterprise scenes, is they use the scenes to exposit, that's, that's the wrong word, to examine a little bit of the character of the people left behind. We see that everyone reacts to this in a different way. Uh, the most obvious is Geordi, who's the main center point for most of this. Now, what I like most about Geordi is the fact, not just that he is obviously emotionally round up about this, but that he can't grieve. And I, I want to stress that very specifically, because that is the exact and specific problem Geordi's going through. He can't deal with this because it doesn't make sense. It's like if he was... Picture this. You're walking along, and you see someone you love and care about. Friend, loved one, family member, whatever. And you're like, hey, and you wave. And, like... An octopus just jumps into the sky, smashes them to the ground, and then leaves. And you're just like... And you can't process the grief at losing the person because what you just saw made no sense. You follow? And so Geordi can't get to that step because his mind, his logical engineering brain, is still running into the wall of, well, this isn't right. And I don't know why. I mean, there's just a squid out of nowhere. Or is it an octopus? I can't even tell. Is it just a spaghetti monster? Is that what this is? And he's just running himself in circles trying to figure out what the hell's going on with this. It's brilliant and also very appropriate because one of the most interesting things about a con is that a good con is a two-layered con. In other words, there's the surface layer, but once you look, you know, basically leave some kind of obvious hint that there's a con on the surface. But then when people start to dig a little bit, you have something more in-depth to prove something that can be perceived as proof of the fact that it's actually true. When, in fact, if you dig even further, well, you find the real truth. Right? Someone like Jordi is the perfect person to get through someone like Kivos Fajo. Because he's intelligent enough and dedicated enough and logical enough, but most importantly enough, he has that driven mentality to make things make sense. So he'll look at them and be like, well, I mean, yeah, that, that surface truth makes sense, but what about the... the, the it's, I've talked about this sometimes. There's the difference between the simple truth and the complex truth, and Jordy is a complex truth person. A con, by definition, only deals in simple truths. So we see how Jordy deals with this. Riker is interesting because he doesn't actually tell Jordy to drop this. Do you notice that? Riker just says, get some rest. Take some time. Come at it from a new angle. And that is damned good advice. That is very Riker. It, he doesn't get much characterization here, but that is good characterization for William T. Riker. The kind of person who will understand, sympathize, encourage, but ultimately his approach to this is we need to deal with this, and we need to deal with this right. He doesn't fully believe Data's gone either. He still hasn't processed or dealt with it either. So, of course, he wants Jordy to keep looking into it. And then Picard, well, now, he's a fun one. Picard has three reactions to Data's death, really, not counting the opening scene. His first is the Iron Wall. We have to keep doing business. We have to replace him with Mr. Wolf. We have to keep dealing with this situation. But that's the duty speaking, the responsibility. 
Ultimately, for Picard, he is job first, and that's part of his character. But you'll notice that at no point in time has he let go of his own feelings on the matter. After he tells Jordy to drop it, as an order, he then immediately drops all tone, drops all iron, and lets the human peek out and he's like, Jordy, I'm hurt by this too. And he just uh, connects with the other human being. And I want to point out really quick, even though we haven't talked about Fajo all that much yet, it's a great contrast between Picard and Fajo. Fajo is someone who goes to extremes, offering not just a carrot, but a gold-plated carrot. Okay, that wouldn't taste good, but you know, that's a bad analogy. A really, really good carrot, like that has extra flavoring and extra nutrients, and it'll, it'll feed you for a week just eating this one carrot. It's a really nice carrot. But if you decide not to do things his way or his whatever, he will lift that carrot away immediately and then torture you, possibly to death. Like the severe, stark contrast between these two extremes, it defines Fajo's command approach. He is actually, in many ways, very similar to the Dominion over in Deep Space Nine. Because there's nothing necessarily wrong with the carrot and stick approach. But Fajo does it with a total absence of care or morality. He doesn't offer you that carrot because he cares about you. He offers it because he wants you to do what he wants you to do. Picard cares about Geordi. Picard cares about his crew. Picard wants what's best for them. Yes, he still gives orders. Both give orders. But the intent and mentality are completely different between the two. And, I feel like pointing this out as well, Fajo has no loyalty to him, only fear. Picard, those people are immensely loyal to him. Because he earned it. Anyways, then we see Worf. Now, Worf's an interesting one. We, again, only get a couple of tidbits for Worf. But my favorite bit is how Worf talks to Troy in the Terrible Lift. You get the impression that Worf is struggling with this emotionally just as much as anyone else is. But, of course, in his mind, while this death is a, is a bad death and it should not have happened and he's not happy about it, Worf is very much a pragmatist. And so having seen this death, Worf is like, alright, what am I going to do about it now? The past sucks, it emotionally hurts, but what can I do about it? So, Worf does. He decides to take Data's place and do the best damn job he can. And it's worth noting, Worf is basically the reason they, un they unfold that half of the problem. Now you could argue that other Starfleet personnel would have done that as well. But I've always liked to think, in the back of my mind, that Worf was being really, really thorough. To an extent that most personnel probably wouldn't be. Because he wanted to do the best damn job he could in honor of his fallen friend. And he knows Data would have caught that. I mean, obviously he didn't know there was something to catch. But you know what I mean, right? Data would have been that thorough. Why would I be any less thorough? Again, very good characterization for Worf. Let's switch to the other side of things. So, Fajo, actually, my first note here is about the carrot and the stick, and I already talked about this, so we'll just skip over that. Uh, what I find amusing is Fajo, uh, he's got a personal belt shield, which he just keeps on him at all times. I wonder how much that's been screwing with his brain. And he's got a super reinforced door. Why doesn't Data try to go through the walls? I know that sounds like a strange thing, but Data's really strong. And at no point does he decide to try to just burst through the walls. You could argue the whole area is lined with the same metal, and that's possible, but the episode doesn't even address that. 
I think that would have been interesting if Data just comes over and as hard as he can slams into the wall and like behind the the paneling or whatever there's you know what in real life would be steel but in the confines of the episode would be you know supertanium or whatever the hell it is it would have been a nice extra st step to show just how far Fosh was willing to go to keep Data here. I've praised so much about Saul Rubinek's presentation as Fajo. I, I don't think I can say anything else that I haven't already said, except for two other things which I want to cover later. I just want to once again praise his portrayal. Excited, enthusiastic, confused? He's so used to getting his way, he's actually legitimately confused at first when Data doesn't comply. He's like, oh, okay, well, I'll just talk through it. Because that's what he's used to doing. You can tell this is a man with a very high charisma score. And he actually, there's this really nice touch that I never noticed before until I watched this on the Blu-ray. He actually summons crocodile tears. Oh, if only you knew my terrible past. The ability to summon that, that, the capacity to cry at will is not an easy task. And you get the impression this is something that he has honed over his years of being a snake oil salesman. So he does so. And then he, as soon as he's called out on it, he drops it immediately. Ah, oh, that's a total lie. My dad was actually super rich. <laughs> you know, just... He's so casual about everything, and I think that's probably my favorite aspect of his presentation, because this is someone who has no real limits, like I said earlier. No moral code, no stringent thing. He cares about himself, and he cares about his things. And that's it. And yet, even he is not a complete monster, but I'll talk more about that in a bit. So, he decides to show off his collection a little bit. It's a good scene, actually. Um, I love how dismissive he, dismissive he is of the Dolly painting, by the way. Ah, Dolly, of course. Oh, look! A, a baseball card! Like, I feel like there's a joke in there somewhere on behalf of the writer or director or someone. But I mention that because I want to talk about collecting really quick. This is a good time to talk about this. I myself understand some of the value of collecting. I myself am a bit of a collector, both in real life and in terms of video games and, you know, fictional stuff, stuff that's digital, um... That's something, I mean, I, I collected music for years and years. Some of you may or may not remember this, but back in the day, getting a hold of video game music used to be extremely difficult to do. I used to have a little mini recorder, I'd just hold it to the TV, and that would be how I would collect my music, because I didn't have any other method of doing so, or just playing the game to listen to a song I wanted. It wasn't until years later they started selling those CDs, in Japan, of course, and it was until much later that people actually started making music more freely available, or rippable. Anyways, um... <clears throat> But I mention that because I, I get that desire and appeal, but what I find most fascinating is there's no such thing as a collector in the strictest sense of the word. In my opinion, I should clarify. So there's a lot of aspects of collecting that can be seen as enjoyable to different people, depending. There's the chase, finding. You know, oh, God, there's this one song I've been trying to find forever, or there's this one game, or there's this one book, or there's this one card, or, oh, I just found out about this one thing, and getting all of it's going to be so difficult. The chase, the acquisition itself can be a very enjoyable thing. Um, I believe it was Spock, actually, who said, find, uh, wanting a thing is not so often as enjoyable as having a thing. It is not logical, but is often true. I'm pretty sure I'm mangling that quote, but something along those lines. So just the simple act, the the, the task of acquiring can be an enjoyable thing. It can be a fun challenge. Then there's the act of rarity. Now what I mean by rarity is, well, I have things in my room right now in which there, of which there are no other versions. They, they don't exist. I have truly unique things here. And I have to admit, 
several of those things have value to me purely because of their rarity. Let me give you a direct example right here. So right here, this is a rock. I, you can't even see it. I'll put it in front of my face so you can see it's something in contrast. It's just a rock. I don't even know what type of rock, and I don't care. This rock was given to me by my niece. There's nothing else like this in the entire world because there's no other rock that was given to me as part of a personal lesson about value and gifting from my niece that exists. This is 100% unique and rare. And it has value to me, partially as a consequence of that. The sentimental value is obviously part of that as well. But you get my point, right? Rarity itself is something that is seen as valuable to some people. Not all people. You know, there's plenty of things that are super rare that have no value. <laughs> But there's also things that are super rare that have value. And that leads us to our next point, because rarity often coincides with two other things. Sentimentality, which I briefly just discussed, and usefulness. Sometimes people really enjoy collecting things that have some kind of use. Now, I don't mean like a tool. But for example, that baseball card, I guarantee you one of the biggest reasons why Kevin, Kevin uh, bleh, Kivos Fajo values it so much is because of the scent. Because it's not just something he can look at, which is nice, but it's something he can smell. That is its use in this case. He has some kind of enjoyable interaction with it that adds to its, uh, its pleasurableness, for lack of a better way to put to it. Right? Make sense? I'm sure a lot of you can understand this too. I personally know two friends who collect amiibos partially because they like them and partially because they like the usage of them. Right? Just to name a more modern example of that. Uh, comic books, right? I know, I know three people who knew three people know one person who collects comic books and again those have a use they're not just something you can collect that's rare or valuable or whatever but you can actually read them and derive enjoyment from them make sense so you can see how that's part of the collecting mentality and then finally there's two last parts of collecting and this is most fascinating to me personally because i'm really big on social behavior and human psychology that's, I like to call it sharing and bragging, because it's two sides of what is effectively the same coin. The idea is a lot of people who collect like to share in their joy of that collecting with others. Notice how happy and excited Fajo was to show off his collection to Data. There was an inherent joy in him as he was just, oh, look at this. And can you believe this? Oh, I can't believe I got one of those. It's wonderful. But there's also this other thing. You know, there's a, there's a presentation to that. Because we like to share things we care about with others. That's a very human thing. It doesn't necessarily have to just apply to collecting, but it also applies to collecting. How many of you at any point in your life have liked to show off your collection to someone off just, just because you had the ability to show it off to someone else? I know I have. The flip side of that is bragging. I have it, you don't, is basically the difference there. And and Fajo definitely falls into that category. You could tell the only reason he invited Weird Face with the metal... Oh, God, that just looks painful. Um, in, I don't remember his name. I guess I could look it up. Uh, Paler Toph, is that him? Yeah, I want to look that up really quick. Yep, that's him, Paler Toph. I got the credits list right up over here. Help me with names. I'm, I'm getting getting used to this. Anyways, you, you could tell he brought him over just to brag, just to be like, yeah, no, I've got this. Check it out. It's one of the most rare things in the entire universe. And I have it, and you don't. Wouldn't you like it if you had this thing? Well, you don't, because I have it. Right? Lording it over someone else. I have to admit, of the aspects I've just talked about, that's the one I understand the least, because my brain just doesn't work that way. But I know that's a thing. I've seen that in people. 
in person I've seen that in people. And historically speaking, I have it and you don't is a very common human thing. Make of that what you will. So all of these together, in my opinion, show most of the gradient of the enjoyment of collecting and what collect what type of collectors there are. Obviously, there's also some blend over, and several collectors fall into multiple categories because, you know, duh, as the saying goes. But I what I find most interesting is that basically all of these are Fajo. He is truly a collector in, in basically every sense of the word. He loves the chase. He loves the rarity. He loves the use. He loves sharing, and he loves bragging. He just hits every gamut there. <sighs> now, one of the next things I want to talk about with regards to Vajo is his approach. He and Data escalate throughout the course of the episode, and it's a nice, interesting escalation because what effectively happens if we were to numerically represent this is Data escalates by one. Then Fajo escalates by five, and then data escalates by one, and then Fajo escalates by ten. Right? As I mentioned earlier, severe extremes of both the carrot and the stick. Makes sense? So Fajo just approaches it first at like, well, this is just the situation. This is just life. You're stuck here. What, what's the problem? And then data says, no. And then so data tries to basically just discuss his way out. He tries to force his way out, and then he's like, okay. And then Faja tries to convince him back. And he tries several different tricks, very typical tricks, to try and convince someone of something. Oh, my past. It was so horrible. No, okay, that didn't work. I command you to do this. Okay, that didn't work. Um, I will be able to give you what you want if you do this. Actually, that's the first thing he tried. Sorry, so I'm doing this in the wrong order. So uh, he tries to bribe him. He tries to, oh, and then he tries to command him. And then he tries to coerce him with the liquid. He says, all right, well, and he flat out says, both of these are things you don't want. Which one do you not want least? I'm cool with whatever. Bye. There was actually a point in the episode that was supposed to be about him sending Vari in to test Data's sexual capacity, which probably failed for several reasons, <laughs> given the network sensors at the time. But I bring that up because I don't think Fajr has any sexual interest in Data at all. And I bring that up because he actually has a line that's still in the episode about, I'd be cool if you wander around nude, keeping in mind that Data does have equipment, as we are aware of. So I don't think there's anything sexual about that. I think there, that's just indicative of how much Fajo loves his toys, to put it in simple terms. That this is not like, oh, I'm in love with you, or oh, you're super attractive. It's, look at this marvelous thing that is mine. You'll notice, by the way, and I'm only pointing this out, because some people will probably think I missed it if I don't. You'll notice that he treats all of his crew, most especially Varia, just like things too, just other parts of his collection. They are his to be done with as he sees fit for whatever purpose he per perceives. Nothing more, nothing less. Anywho, <laughs> so as Fajo escalates, Data escalates, and Data goes to the next step, which is Actually, a very logical one. You think about it. Pure passive resistance. The fall over as a dummy was actually brilliantly done. I feel bad for Brent Spiner having to do that, by the way. That's actually harder to do than it looks. It probably took several takes. Um, so, having you know, escalated and counter-escalated at this point, after the passive resistance thing, Fajr comes back and pulls out the Veron T. This is when we get the first of two tidbits of very interesting characterization for Fajr. 
And this is one of the reasons I love the character, because it's easy, as strange as this may sound, to write and play a character who is evil. And that's their characterization. They're evil. Nothing more, nothing less, right? But Fajo has some additional layers to him, and I think that's partially on the, the behalf of the writer, partially the director, and a whole lot on Saul Rubinek, who I've been praising this entire episode, because he talks about how you can just see there's this sort of morbid curiosity. I've always wanted to try it. He's never shot this thing. He has never fired this doom gun, this torture weapon. But he's always wanted to see what it would be like. Not because he wants to, but because it would be a rare experience. To actually be able to fire a weapon so few people ever have, to see something that most people have never perceived. It is, again, the collection that matters to him. In this case, the collection of an experience. And so you can just see that sort of... But then, it, you know, of course he hasn't and probably won't. So then he goes and threatens Varia and Data says, yeah, okay, fine, I'll sit down. Oh, good, good. This is, of course, another reason why Fajo's approach doesn't really work long term. And this has been also historically proven to be true. Because if you, if you make the... I've talked about this so much in the Star Trek. If you make the situation so obviously bad that whether you comply or not, the results are still bad, you have a situation where people are going to rebel. That is historically true, in addition to just obviously duh. So Varya helps Data escape. Now, this is when things get interesting. So first of all, I, just, I have a note here which I want to comment on. It's nice to see Starfleet doing something, being competent. It feels sad that I have to point that out, but at least Starfleet being competent has become far more of a thing as of Season 3, whereas in Season 1 and 2, incompetence is kind of the name of the game, just to be completely blunt about it. I know at least one of my viewers has been continuously positing the idea that if we consider a conspiracy to be full canon, which I admit I usually don't, a lot of that incompetency, make, incompetency makes sense. And he's right, it does make sense if we presume that Starfleet's upper echelons were gutted by the Bluegills. That is very logical. That would also kind of make sense, then, for why around this point in history, Starfleet's finally started to turn around and have a brain. But I digress. So, Starfleet, you know, is, it hunts him down, successfully finds him relatively quickly, very within minutes, actually. And then Fajo, Varya lunges for the gun, and Fajo's like this, and she, you could just see in her expression, I want to give some praise, by the way, to Jane Daly, who plays Varya. Um, you can see she's just resigned to death. And, again, there's no dialogue in this scene. It's all acting. He's got the gun, and he's thinking about it. And I'm not as good as an actor, but it's all over his face. Just watch the scene. It's my favorite scene in the whole episode, because he's just really thinking about it. And you can just hear him arguing with himself. And he finally decides, no... And then he hits that one point, and I know a lot of you know what that point is, emotionally. It's the, eh, screw it, point. When you've logicked yourself out of an action, right? You have every reason in the world to do something or not to do something. And after you have successfully convinced yourself, there's that one last emotional spark. I bet a lot of you know what I'm talking about. Where it's just, eh, and then you just do it. A lot of us tend to regret those kind of actions. So then he shoots her, and she dies screaming. And his face, again, credit to the actor, he is so horrified and so disgusted by this, just, 
Oh, he literally tosses the gun away. Just, whoa, whoa. Oh, God, and his body language really makes it clear how horrible this is. And that's what I find interesting about Fajo, because if he truly was just a monster and nothing else, he would have just been like, and he would have watched, soaking in every moment. But instead, he's just like, whoa! Oh, God! I think Sci-Fi Debris pointed as he was so turned off by it. Just, Jesus! And he starts to rationalize it away almost immediately. Like, this is your fault. And you notice it takes him a few seconds and a few lines to recover. He's still like, he's still just reeling from what he just did until he's like, okay, no, no, this is, this is Data's fault. This is Data's fault, not mine. I didn't do this. Right? So then Data approaches him with a gun, and Fajo does what Fajo always does. He talks. He rolls charisma. But you can't do a charisma roll against an android. And what I love most is credit to Brent Spiner, who I haven't given a ton of credit in this episode, even though he deserves it, because you can see him basically processing. Fajo calls it another interesting intellectual exercise, but the problem is Data is like a Vulcan in many ways. Logic tempered with morality. This is someone who does have a firm belief in right and wrong, is not, I mean, is completely emotionless, unlike a Vulcan. We'll be talking more about Vulcans later this season when it comes to Sarek. But he looks at right and wrong, and he knows how to consider the situation, and he decides, I cannot permit this to continue. And that is it, and that is all. No revenge, no rage, no righteous indignation. A conclusion. A very logical conclusion. This must cease. Raise gun, ready to fire. And this brings us to something interesting. There was executive meddling in this whole situation, and apparently the episode was basically rewritten to make it ambiguous. Now, having said that, in the episode proper, it is ambiguous. So I ask you simply, what do you think? Do you think Data was going to kill Fajo? Or, I don't think it was a murder, by the way. I adamantly disagree with that usage of that word. Although Fajo's use of it is accurate, because Fajo is trying to convince Data not to do it. But, regardless, do you think Data would have killed Fajo, or do you think he was merely pushing the threatening line there? Again, the intent, the original intent was... Data fired. And by the way, the writer and Brent Spiner both agree very firmly, Data fired. And so do I. Because it is simply too logical to presume otherwise. It makes too much sense for Data to have come to this conclusion and seek its natural outcome. He was prevented from this killing by circumstance, not by choice. The only thing that makes that weird, then, is that he then lies to Riker. Except he doesn't. I hate to nitpick here, but this is Data we're talking about. Data considers and says, hmm, there must have been some kind of thing in transit. And that's all he says. He does not lie. Indeed, he was not asked a direct question. I have a pers My head personal headcanon is if Riker says, did you fire that? Data would say, yes, because lying is just not something Data can do, except under certain circumstances. But instead, he diverts the question and doesn't actually answer it. The episode ends with Fajo, again, brilliantly acted, in the cage, and Data. Now, this is nicely ambiguous. It must give you great pleasure to know I've lost my collection, paraphrased. And Data says, no, sir, I do not have such pleasure. Again, paraphrased. I am only an android. And that is wonderfully ambiguous, because that can mean so many different things. 
And I would love to hear your guys' thoughts. What do you think? What do you think is the nature of Data's final interaction in the coda with Fajo? Now, I will give you my interpretation, because I've actually talked about this before, if you've been paying attention, you've been watching this whole series. Because while Data does not have emotion, I don't believe satisfaction is an emotion. I don't. I've, I've talked about this before. So I'm not going to rehash myself too much. But I do think Data finds tremendous satisfaction in the fact that the situation exists. He does not feel pleasure. It's not like he's just like, Nyum. but instead, I feel like Data looks at this as a job well done. This is what should be, and it is, therefore, good. And I think that's why he says things the way he does in that final bit there. I like that. Because it also kind of shows how Fajo never really understood Data, but Data understood Fajo perfectly. That's all I got for this episode. Great episode. Really a treat going back through it. I hope you guys have enjoyed. I'll see you next time.